This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. Last Friday, front-page headlines of prominent newspapers read like the cover of the National Enquirer. And I quote, We barely dodged the Herschel Walker bullet, and then another, the suppression of Hunter Biden's laptop is a huge deal. But wait, there's more. How about the one that says, Avoid Harry and Meghan's Netflix, Yorna? I mean, seriously, what? Is this who we are anymore? Has the spectacle of Trumpism also turned us into trite gossip mongers who need our news spoon-fed to us with a very unhealthy dose of salacious entertainment? I mean, come on, folks, for God's sake. Then there's Nick Carter of the Backstreet Boys, who's been accused of raping a woman in 2001, and now their holiday special has been canceled. We can't have nice things because humans have a habit of behaving very badly. But in a week full of strange and horrible news, there was this. Brittany Griner is on her way back to the U.S. Uh, after a prisoner swap that, you know, the Biden administration has been um, negotiating for all this time since she was, uh, was arrested in Russia for having uh, some hash uh, in a vape pen. Um, they, and then she's been held since then, and we've been saying this all year, She's been a political prisoner. Sure. Um, the the sentence that she got was far too too large for what she did, um, and this was about Russia wanting something, and they got it. It looked like a scene out of the film Bridge of Spies. A plane lands on a near-empty tarmac in the United Arab Emirates and two very different individuals walk past one another in a prisoner exchange. Now one of them is a notorious international arms dealer and terrorist, convicted of conspiring to kill Americans. And the other, an international basketball star who had been wrongly accused of drug smuggling and sentenced to 10 years of hard labor in a Russian work camp. But now Griner's heading home after the White House agreed to a one-for-one prisoner swap for Russian arms dealer Viktor Boot, whose nickname is the Merchant of Death. So to get a sports star who had less than one gram of weed, we handed over the Merchant of Death. This is how it always goes with Russian prisoner swaps. Okay, we give you back tourists who took unflattering photo of Red Square. You release Gargog the Flesh Mangler. As of Friday, Griner is home on U.S. soil, released from Russia in exchange for the Merchant of Death. But her release is a double-edged sword because another American detained in Russia, ex-Marine Paul Whelan, is still and remaining in custody in Russia. Tom Pasquarello, the DE agent who helped put Victor Bout behind bars, slams the swap saying, and I quote, We couldn't even get two people for the world's most notorious weapons trafficker. Fourteen years ago in a dramatic sting operation, that again seems straight out of the movies, Bout was nabbed and was serving a 25-year sentence on charges of providing weapons to terrorists and conspiring to kill Americans. The administration will continue to work to secure the release of Paul Whelan. Some Republicans, meanwhile, used Griner's release yesterday as a chance to criticize President Biden, and in some cases, Brittany Griner herself. Think about the exchange here. The merchant of death for a WNBA star who was picked up for marijuana. He left a Marine behind. 
Think about it. It's not an equal exchange. Let's think about what we did here. We, we uh, traded a basketball player for a known terrorist, a criminal. You know, I hope Brittany um, realizes she lives in the greatest country in the world. The price of freedom isn't free. And I, I sure hope she'll stand for the national anthem now. Our president's so weak, he couldn't get, you know, uh, these two guys for this one uh, terrorist, really. It, it's shameful. Former agent Pasquarello told reporters, and I quote, freeing Bout early was a troubling decision with potentially huge repercussions. He argues that the United States State Department has a responsibility to figure out how to bring Griner and others wrongfully detained Americans home without offering a prisoner exchange or making other major concessions. It sends a terrible message that the United States will negotiate with terrorists. And let's face it, folks, Putin is a terrorist who wants nothing more than to make America suffer. But what were our options? I mean, Griner was being held hostage and dragged through Russia's non-existent legal system for 10 horrific months. And some experts have said all along that the Russians nabbed Griner because of her high profile and that they used her notoriety as a bargaining chip to spring the merchant of death from a supermax prison. Do you believe that Victor Boot will now once again pose a threat to the United States and to Americans? Well, that's going to be up to Mr. Boot. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to stay vigilant uh, and we're going to defend our national security, uh, whether it's against folks uh, that do his line of work or even him. Now, look, folks, I'm not a detective, but Paul Whelan isn't exactly the Boy Scout that some of the press is making him out to be. Now, I'm not saying he's a bad guy. I'm also not saying that he's a spy, but he was caught with a lot more than a cartridge of THC. According to Whalen's lawyer, he unwittingly received a flash drive containing state secrets while visiting Russia for a wedding in 2018. Was it a setup? I mean, it could have been. I was arrested for a crime that never occurred. I'm happy that Brittany is going home today and that Trevor went home when he did. But I don't understand why I'm still sitting here. I have to say I am greatly disappointed that more has not been done to secure my release. Trump's old buddy, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says that Whalen was caught red-handed during a spy mission. Now, of course, there's absolutely no reason to trust Lavrov, but according to the Washington Post, Whalen was discharged from the Marines for bad conduct in 2008 after being convicted of charges related to larceny. So like I said, He's maybe not a Boy Scout, but in any case, it must have been devastating for him. I mean, he was packed and ready to come home after four years in a Russian jail, and at the very last minute, his release was revoked. I mean, that's fucking cold. But we still don't know tonight what condition Paul Whelan is in, because Putin is refusing to release him unless he gets this assassin back. You're looking at him. His name is Vadim Krasikov, and he's currently serving a life sentence in Germany for killing someone three years ago, execution style, in broad daylight in a park. Krasikov executed his target using a silencer, approaching him from behind, shooting him twice in the body, and then shooting him in the back of the head as he lay on the ground. It was a hit the German court found was ordered by the Russian government itself. This story isn't over. I'm sure Griner will have much to tell us about her harrowing experiences in the Gulag. And hopefully, Whalen will be released soon too. 
But this high-stakes game of chess in the middle of a cold war between two superpowers is playing out like one of the most fascinating spy flicks ever made. This was how she announced her decision today. We make decisions about what's best for ourselves, our family, and our community. And so we don't spend a lot of time thinking about, is this a Republican idea or is this a Democratic idea? Is this liberal or is this conservative? That's not how Arizonans think. Registering as an independent and showing up to work with the title of independent is a reflection of who I've always been. Now, regarding Kristen Cinema, I'm not sure whether to jump for joy and shake my head in disgust. But last Friday, the attention-seeking senator from Arizona elected to change her party affiliation from Democrat to Independent. To be fair, she is considered one of the most bipartisan senators on the Hill. But she also refuses to discuss the logic behind how she votes and for palling around with certain influential Republican father figures. Okay, look, it's simple. The people voted her into office and she owes the people an explanation for her actions. And for once, she gave us one. Along with her announcement, she released a video explanation for the Switch that honestly seemed more like, more like an audition for a TV show about a maverick bisexual senator who breaks all the rules. Think Parks and Rec meets the West Wing. Now I'm serious, none of these news stories even seem real today. For context, it's worth understanding just how unpopular Kristen Cinema is with Democratic voters in her state. A poll taken this past January, just as Senators Cinema and Manchin were throwing a wrench in President Biden's agenda, found that only 19% of Democratic primary voters in Arizona approved of the job Senator Cinema was doing. By contrast, Senator Mark Kelly had an 83% approval rating among those same Arizona Democrats. President Biden was at 80%. That same poll found Senator Sinema would lose a hypothetical primary race to Arizona Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego by a whopping, staggering 58 points. 58! Senator Sinema is likely more unpopular with voters in her own party than any Democratic senator has been in decades. And that is the real reason Senator Sinema left the Democratic Party today. By changing her affiliation to independent, Sinema is ensuring that she won't have to face a primary challenger and that any Arizona Democrat who wants to challenge her will have to do so in a three-way race that could risk splitting the Democratic vote and handing that race to a Republican. But this did ring true to me. Reporter Mehdi Hassan tweeted, Cinema owes her entire career to the Democratic Party. She's been endlessly indulged by a party leadership, but she waits till a moment of celebration for the Democrats to make this announcement. So like I've said before, it goes way beyond politics or ideology. I mean, come on guys, she's just fucking awful. Fortunately, Arizonians have a real Democrat gearing up to replace her, Ruben Gallego, an Iraq war veteran who was already in the Arizona State Congress. And you could check him out at gallegoforarizona.com forward slash donate. I think what's happening right now is negotiations, that people want to see certain changes and we're working through that. And we'll get there. And if we can't come together on that opening day, no investigations. No subpoenas, no repealing 87,000 IRS agents, no becoming energy independent, no securing the border. I think that's more important than sitting and squabbling with one another. Now, good old Kevin McCarthy seems pretty worried that his bid to become House Speaker is failing. 
So what does he do? So he's on Newsmax last week saying basically if Republicans fuck around and don't vote for him, that the Democrats will end up choosing the next speaker. <laughs> Me personally, I wish. But I don't think that sort of talk will persuade the caucus to get behind you, Kevin. He simply doesn't have the number of votes to put him over. Slim majority was disappointing to many, yeah. but it may give us an opportunity that even a large majority wouldn't have presented to actually upset the apple cart, to drain the swamp, and to not trust the biggest alligators there to do it. So far, five Republican representatives have signaled that they will not support Kevin, and adding insult to injury, traitor Andy Biggs is putting himself forward as speaker. Not sure how an insurrectionist who begged Trump for a pardon due to his shenanigans on January 6th can become Speaker of the House. But look, we all know stranger things have probably happened. I don't know if I mentioned, it is my uh, final show, final episode of The, of the Daily Show with uh, Trevor Noah. And um, don't be sad. I know a lot of people are sad, but please don't be sad. Uh, you should be happy that an African leader is peacefully leaving power. <laughs> That's never a guarantee. That's never a guarantee. When he replaced Jon Stewart on The Daily Show, almost no one had ever heard of him. But now, seven years later, the South African comedian is one of America's most outstanding cultural commentators in America. And just about no one has a bad word to say about Trevor Noah. Noah is retiring because The Daily Show is a hell of a lot of work. And while he's young, Noah wants to have a life. And seriously, who can blame him? I'm actually leaving for uh, another, I'm not leaving for a movie, I'm not leaving for like a, another show. I don't have anything lined up at the moment, it's just about this right now. Wait a minute. So you're leaving a good job. You quitting a job without having another job? Line up? No, you crazy, you don't leave a job! Do nothing? Wow, you really are half white. He says he's quitting to travel, to write, and to perform stand-up. But his outsider perspective on our culture wasn't just funny, it was fresh. I mean, smart as hell and often totally on the money. We'll miss Noah, but Comedy Central's already teasing possible replacement Al Franken amongst them. In the meantime, Comedy Central has announced a list of comedy greats to fill, including D.L. Hughley, Leslie Jones, Cal Penn, and Wanda Sykes. Trevor Noah will begin his off-the-record tour in Atlanta starting on January 20th, so thank you, Trevor, for all the laughs and all the smart takes. And good luck, kid, because we'll be watching. And thank you for keeping us a little bit more safe. Have fun at the candy shop. Yo, Trevor, you're the f Man, whatever you do, congratulations, keep it real, and with everybody. Trevor, I wish you the best. You're awesome. Thank you for all your work. Go make fun the world. I was going to say, like, exactly that verbatim. Go make fun of the world. And now for the main event. Today we welcome back to our show, Mr. Justice Matters himself, Glenn Kirshner. 
Kirshner is a former prosecutor with 30 years of trial experience, and with it, he brings analysis and insight into legal issues of the day, drawing from his experience as a federal prosecutor, a homicide prosecutor, and an Army JAG officer. Glenn is an NBC contributor and MSNBC legal analyst. He also teaches criminal law at George Washington University. Catches great shows, Capital Crimes with Glenn Kirchner, and Justice Matters on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so welcome back, Glenn. Let's jump right in. There's a lot to talk about, especially the latest twist in the Mar-a-Lago documents scandal. And here on Mea Culpa, it's not Mar-a-Lago, it's Mar-a-Lago, right? So... Two more classified documents have now been found and turned over to the FBI. Now, despite the fact they were not at Mar-a-Lago, they were at some storage facility in West Palm Beach. You think that Jack Smith will accelerate this case? I mean, maybe search all of Trump's residences. You may have seen on August 31, I put out a tweet that said, FBI needs to raid Every single location that Donald was at since he came back from the White House, because I guarantee you that there are additional documents there. That's August 31. And further, in this, is this the case that brings him down? Do you think that this is the one that moves the fastest and ultimately has him indicted and potentially incarcerated? Or do you have another favorite? How does it not bring him down? Because it's not only obviously a criminal offense, actually multiple criminal offenses, as we know from the search warrant of Mar-a-Lago, right? There were theft of documents. There's obstruction of justice for basically thumbing your nose at a subpoena for those documents. There is a crime that falls under the Espionage Act, mishandling national defense information. So these are not only crimes, but they're crimes that pose a serious risk to our national security. How could these not be indicted and brought promptly? Now, they haven't been yet. So, you know, we're, we're still waiting. Um, and the fact that we're still the, the fact that documents are still being recovered from the constructive possession of Donald Trump. And for those, you know, criminal law purists, you can actually possess something, which is when I have it in my hot little hands, or you can constructively possess something when you have it in an area over your control to which you have access, like a storage facility, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that these documents are still being found, you asked the question, Michael, why didn't they execute search warrants at all of Donald Trump's properties? Now, for 30 years, I was a federal prosecutor, and I made it a point to play by the rules. So what are the rules? The rules are, if we're going to apply for a search warrant for a particular location, we need to meet an evidentiary standard. We need to have probable cause to believe evidence of crime will be found in a particular place at the time we execute the search warrant. Now, If DOJ has been playing by the rules all along, and I think they have, even if they haven't moved quickly enough, um, the fact that they didn't get uh, search warrants for Bedminster or Trump Tower or another search warrant for Mar-a-Lago tells me 
that maybe they didn't feel like they could meet that evidentiary burden of probable cause, so they didn't apply for those search warrants. Does that make sense to me? Not a lot of sense. What makes even less sense, Michael, is how is it that the target of the criminal investigation can hire people to conduct a search for the documents he stole? Mm -hmm. I don't understand that. And how can that team that's conducting those searches be overseen by a team of Donald Trump's lawyers who have already been caught in lies, signing certifications that everything has been turned over after a diligent search? None of this, none of this makes any law enforcement sense to this old career prosecutor. So do me a favor, if you would, because you mentioned both the Espionage Act as well as um, theft of government documents. Let's start off with the Espionage Act. Now, if I'm not mistaken, that goes back to like the early 1900s, like 19, was it 17 or 1918, something like that. Um, can you can you speak on that for my listeners, just so that they fully understand what the uh, Espionage Act is, and more importantly, how does it actually relate to this specific case? So the Espionage Act is kind of an umbrella um, description of a number of federal statutes that were enacted as part of the overarching Espionage Act. One of those statutes, one of the crimes is mishandling national defense information. Importantly, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be classified. It doesn't matter if Donald Trump magically in his mind declassified things or not. It doesn't matter if Donald Trump actually followed the protocol of declassification and declassified things, which we all know he didn't do, right? Mm -hmm. So because the the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago had those three crimes, and this is why this is so important. When we apply for a search warrant, we have to tell the judge what federal statute we believe has been violated and what evidence we will find to help prove the violation of that federal statute. And the prosecutors and the FBI agents put three in the affidavit in support of the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago. It's the documents crimes, it's the obstruction of justice, and it's the Espionage Act mishandling of national defense information. And I, I would have to go into my big blue book of laws of the U.S. federal code, don't leave home without it, to give you a more precise definition of exactly the nature of the information that qualifies as national defense information under that particular statute. But the prosecutors and the FBI agents believed that was just one of the crimes Donald Trump committed. Right. Chris, when I was thinking about the espionage, and I was trying to have trying to figure out how it sort of relates to Donald. I mean, the three names that always come up when you think of the Espionage Act, right? The Rosenbergs, you have Assange and Snowden. Those are generally the three that people relate to, even though I believe that there were more. But I'm trying to figure out exactly how it applies specifically to what Donald did. Now, we know he had these documents, and stupidly, he acknowledged that he knew about the documents being there. He took them. The smarter move for him would have been to say, I have no idea who packed it up. I it not, had nothing to do with me, right? Do what he always exactly. does. I have no idea. I leave the White House. I'm not, I'm not packing my stuff. I have people that pack, 
right? That's what, you know, that's what I would suspect that somebody like Donald Trump would have said. How specifically does this relate to Donald, despite the fact that he did not do that and acknowledge the taking of the documents? Yeah, so two things on that, Michael. First of all, you're right. When we hear espionage, we think, oh, somebody who's selling our national secrets to a foreign power or to an enemy of the United States. Yes, that's one kind of espionage. But it can just be unlawfully taking and unlawfully retaining what is uh, what is characterized as national defense information, even if you haven't sold it to anybody, frankly, even if you don't intend to sell it to anybody, that can still violate one of the statutes that falls under the Espionage Act. So people shouldn't jump to the conclusion that because you hear the word espionage up, the feds must have evidence that Donald's trying to sell our nation's secrets. Now, was he going to try to leverage to his financial benefit this stuff that he stole from the White House? Of course he was. Was he going to use it to try to get more favorable business deals overseas or, you know, I, you know him better than I do. Or, but I don't a, or, any of that or look, as, I, as I've said, Glenn, I believe he was going to use it for two things. One, to extort the United States government in these indictments and potential incarceration by stating, I have documents that are national security um, involved that involve national security and that are detrimental to the national security of the country you really want to play with me you want to fuck with me guys serious you really want to burn down the country look i'm an older guy now and so i have limited time here anyway you keep coming at me like this you keep coming at my family we're going to release these documents to iran to saudi arabia to north korea to you know to america's adversaries um that's what I believe that he was ultimately going to do with it, or at least he thought about it in that way. I also believe exactly what you just said, that he was going to use those documents to financially better himself because he knows that he's guilty of all of these things. He knows, for example, um, that there was going to be a lot of litigation against him. And so this is sort of a, um, uh, let's just call it a slush fund for him based on documents. He could easily go to Putin and say, hey, you want to know where all our missile silos are? You want to know some dirty shit on um, Macron or you want to know about Iran? I have those documents. You want them? I have a Swiss bank account under so-and-so name. I could see Donald doing that. Don't get me wrong. You know, he's slick enough. But then you brought up the other one, which was the theft of government property. And that's uh, known as 18 U.S.C. 641. Um, it's very similar, I guess, in nature to the Espionage Act because it makes it a crime to steal, to embezzle, or to knowingly convert with intent. And again, he acknowledges the intent for your own personal gain, the property, uh, or to sell, convey, or dispose of any record, voucher, money, or something of value issued by a department of the United States government. Well, and, here, and here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of Donald Trump's post about those documents. And he, you know, he actually admitted to two crimes in one post on his third-rate social media platform, which he should rename from Truth Social to Confession Social because he uses it to confess to crimes. <laughs> he said, first of all, he said, I took the documents from the White House more openly and transparently than other presidents. 
Do you know what a gift that was to Jack Smith's special counsel and the yep. prosecution team? Because one of the things that I have been sort of puzzling through is we all know Donald Trump wasn't down on his knees in the Oval Office collecting documents up himself and putting them in right. boxes, right? Other people did that for him. Other people, I'm quite sure, did it at his direction. And then somebody shipped it down to Mar-a-Lago. Donald Trump wasn't loading those boxes onto a pallet or onto a plane. That gives him a natural defense, a natural opportunity. I don't know. I have no... Are you kidding me? Do yep. you think... With the way I sit up on high, I'm going to be loading boxes and moving them around myself. I have no idea what they brought down to Mar-a-Lago. But so we had to prove we, the royal we, I was a prosecutor for so long, I can't break the habit. They, the prosecutors, have to prove that he knowingly and, and perhaps even intentionally, depending on the intent requirement, knew what, what was being taken to Mar-a-Lago. Once you post, I openly and transparently took these things more openly and transparently than other presidents. Thank you for checking off that element of the crime for us. But here's the other thing he did in that post. And I think this has gotten less attention. That's a direct admission of guilt. He directly admitted to an element of the crime. There's also an implicit or an inferential admission of guilt in that same post. He said, what about Hillary? After she was subpoenaed, her emails were subpoenaed, she deleted them or didn't produce them. She violated the subpoena by making What about her? You didn't go after her. Well, inferentially, what has he just admitted to? After he was subpoenaed for documents that belong to the federal mm -hmm. government, he didn't produce them by using Hillary as an example of what is crime in his estimation that went unaddressed by the Department of Justice, I did the same thing, so you can't come after me. That is another huge admission, but it's an inferential admission instead of a direct admission. But, I, you know, that's why you say, when you say, Michael, you know, Donald Trump is a pretty crafty criminal. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but if you're stealing certain things to extort the United States government, right, that's pretty crafty, I think. But how can you be that crafty on the one hand and be so stupid to post admissions to the very crimes that are being investigated? I can't really sort of rectify those. So two I can things. give you the answer to that. You can be both, right? He's devious in his intent, which was to take documents that he believed would continue to give him power and would give him potential financial benefit. But you could also be stupid in terms of your responses for why you took it. You see, I never said Donald Trump is smart. He knows how to play the media very, very well. He knows how to play people, how to read a room. But now you put him with his back against the wall and you confront him, as the government is doing, with the taking of classified documents. 
Stupid is a year and a half earlier, the FBI had reached out, or I should say NARA reached out to him and demanded the return of these documents that they knew he took. And then they pussyfooted around with him for over a year until he finally turned over some documents. And then he had this Christina Bob, thanks to Boris Epstein, another asshole who goes ahead, right, and has her sign off on a document attesting that there's nothing else that's there. All right. Lo and behold, there's an inside mole, and I have often stated, and I still believe it, though it's my opinion, that it's Javanka, it's Jared and Ivanka that are providing this information. And then they get the magistrate to sign off on a warrant, Garland, the whole line, because obviously it's not just some local magistrate that signed off on this warrant to go raid Mar-a-Lardo. And so they go, they do, and what do they find? Exactly where they said that the documents are, the documents are top secret, some are the highest of secret, and then they take those as well. Now, again, going back to what I had said on August 31, right after the raid, the same day or the day after the raid, you got to go and you got to look, where's Waldo? Where's Donald Trump been? Because rest assured, you need to find out not only where he was and where he potentially left additional documents. But who showed up there? And if they showed up there, let's say it's a foreign agent, how do we know that he didn't let them photocopy it or take a picture with their phone or give them a copy or give them the original? Who knows? That's the problem with this whole issue. There's more here than just meets the eye. Why should you and I as U.S. citizens, why should anyone, my listeners, anyone, why should we be concerned that the former president of the United States took classified documents, put them in an unsecured location, moved them around from place to place to place, and potentially showed them to our adversary, putting the entire country, our lives, in jeopardy and basically putting the entire national security of this country at risk. We should not have to think this way. Yeah, one of my one of my grievances with my old agency, the Department of Justice, and I, I give them their props when they earned them. I sat through the seven week Oath Keepers trial and I know the prosecutors because the two lead prosecutors are my colleagues. I tried the first murder case with Catherine Ricosi who, you know, was is a remarkable prosecutor. And I say all of that because I want the American people to know they were extraordinarily well represented in the Oath Keepers prosecution by those Department of Justice prosecutors. But boy, here is the grievance I have with the way DOJ has kind of pussyfooted around Donald Trump. We know he has compromised our national security. We don't know precisely what he did with right. the documents or, or, as you say, who he, who he showed them to, who he copied them for and sent them to. We don't know. But what we do know is by the very act of stealing top secret and SCI special compartmented information. I did an espionage case when I was a prosecutor in the Army. I got all the high-speed security clearances. And I'll tell you, Michael, I was scared like all get out that I was going to say or do something that I shouldn't. And I was, I, you know, you take that deadly seriously mm -hmm. when you are involved in those kind of materials. 
So we know he compromised our nation's security. Have we made any effort to lock him up, to interrogate him, to debrief him, to try to get from him how he compromised our national security? No. Instead, we pussyfoot around for a year, mm -hmm. a year and a half. Oh, please, won't you return them? Thank you so much. Oh, now we have to subpoena them. Oh, wait, you didn't give them all to us. Let us get some more. Oh, please, Mr. Prevo. What, what, what in the world is driving what appears to be the timidity, the unwillingness of the Department of Justice to go at this hard in the interest of protecting our national security? That I will never understand. I think the rule of law has a great big black eye right now. And I'm not saying Donald Trump will never be charged. I still believe he will. And if he's not, I believe that takes us in the direction of the end of our republic. I believe he will be charged. But he cannot be charged in a timely manner because that train left the station a very long time ago. Well, do you not think that the DOJ has a black eye as a direct result of an unconstitutional remand of a U.S. citizen to prison because he refused to waive a First Amendment constitutional right? And of course, I'm referring to myself. I'm referring to Bill Barr working in conjunction with clearly Donald Trump for the sole purpose of preventing me from putting out my first book, Disloyal. I mean... What yeah. about that as a, as a black eye? And then, to make matters even worse, you get a guy like Jeffrey Berman. You, by the way, I filed a bar complaint against him yesterday for exactly the words that came out of his mouth that are in his book, where I turned around and I said, you know what, enough is enough. This guy decides that he's going to hold on to information such as Bill Barr and the Department of Justice this guy, Edward O'Callaghan, reaching out to exerting pressure to whitewash my case for the benefit of Donald Trump, decides not to say anything, even though he had recused himself already and it was in the hands of Robert Kazami, and they were talking about the case all the time, according to the book. And maybe I'll file a complaint against him too. But at the end of the day, what, do they, what does he do? He keeps it to himself. Ultimately, of course, Trump loses, thank God, the election. New administration. He's terminated. He goes on. He leaves. I think he's at Freed Frank now, the law firm. And then he decides, you know what? I'm going to take this information and I'm going to write a book about it for profit. Something seems yeah. wrong here. It's either unethical or illegal or <laughs> both. And I can tell you something. I'm dying to see what the New York State Bar Association is planning on doing with this case. Well, Michael, it... it when you talk about people who are in government service, who sit on information that they know about crimes being committed by, let's just use Trump as an example, when they sit on it, when they decline to report it to the appropriate authorities, and then they wait until after they leave government service and they profit off of it by putting it in a book. There is a crime called misprision of a felony. 18 United States Code, Section 4. And it says, when you become aware of a federal felony um, and you fail to timely report it to the appropriate authorities, you've actually committed the federal crime of misprision of a felony. 
and I haven't seen anybody held accountable for like the Boltons of the world who will sit on incriminating information, crimes being committed by high federal officials, not report it and then profit off of it later. I don't understand why we're not enforcing that particular federal statute. Um, you know, one way that I am personally trying to attack that problem, you know, and I had some success when I retired as a federal homicide prosecutor and I saw the problem of a quarter of a million unsolved murder cases in our country with a quarter of a million families who sit by the phone every night waiting for a call to come from a detective saying we got a break in your loved one's case. You know, I tackled that problem by drafting a federal bill, um, the Homicide Victims the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act. And, sure. and thank goodness I had Eric Swalwell, Representative Swalwell, a Great former guy. prosecutor who who um, who let me work with his legislative director for years. And just a few months ago, that was signed into law by President Biden. And there's help coming to homicide families. I see the same thing with respect to ethics and government service. We have failed miserably on, on requiring ethical conduct of our federal employees and high government officials. And I think there is not an easy fix, but something that we can easily put in place to change the culture. And that's my next windmill that I'm tilting at. We all take an oath of office. I took it many times as an army jag and as a federal prosecutor to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. If we add one simple clause to that statute, that statute, uh, that, that oath, I'm sorry, that oath is given pursuant to a federal statute that says this language must be given. All we need to do is add one clause and I will timely report any information that I come into possession of, that there have been crimes committed by high government officials or federal employees, period. Because now whistleblowers aren't the exception. Whistleblower blowing isn't just the norm. It's part of your sworn obligation. And if everybody in government was required to report federal crimes being committed by their federal uh, fellow federal government employees, you know, that would, I think, put everybody on point that, oh, man, who's going to turn me in? It's going to change the culture because right now the culture is I don't have to report anything. I'm going to sit on it and I'm going to profit from it later. We have to have a renaissance of ethics in government or we are going to continue to be in the in the hole that we're in. Yep, especially at the Southern District. But, you know, I just want to give you a line or uh, a paragraph from the complaint that I put in just to get your impression on it. So I go, in his book, Mr. Berman writes, and then I'm going to quote, Trump's Justice Department kept demanding that I use my office to aid them politically, and I kept declining, dot, 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 in ways just tactful enough to keep me from being fired. Mr. Berman, despite his self-aggrandizing refusal to capitulate to the pressure campaign, failed and failed miserably to uphold his ethical and legal obligation to report the occurrence. By failing to do so, Mr. Berman deprived me of valuable information that could have been used in my defense. The question of why he kept this information to himself and a few insiders is obvious and again answered by Mr. Berman's own words to keep me from being fired. 
That is, until the new administration was elected, his position terminated, and thus affording him the opportunity in September of 2022, four years later, to reveal the information in a for-profit book. Could you imagine this? I mean, this is the guy who wore the big boy pants in the Southern District of New York. You know, then there's one additional line. So I go, Mr. Berman's refusal to notify anyone was intentional, despite knowing and acknowledging the improper pressure being applied by Maine Justice. In fact, Mr. Berman states so in the book, and he writes, and I quote, I wanted people to understand the full scope of the outrageous and improper political interference by Trump's Justice Department in the cases of the Southern District of New York that demonstrates what Trump is capable of and what he's likely to do. Berman further states, and I quote, and it also provides a frontline view of just how vulnerable our justice system is. Well, our justice system is vulnerable because of people like him. He's being he was being pressured to obstruct justice and he did nothing about it. And let me let me read the one sentence that is misprision of a felony. Whoever having knowledge of the actual commission of a felony cognizable by a court of the United States, in other words, a federal felony conceals and does not as soon as possible make known the same to the appropriate authority, shall be imprisoned for three years. So right now, the culture is federal employees and high government officials can sit on evidence of crime of which they're aware. They can sit on it. They can just decide, you know what? I'm not going to report it. I'm going to profit off of it later. Or if you want to give them the benefit of the doubt for doing it for a less nefarious purpose, I want to be one of the guardrails that stays inside government and tries to manage the crime that's going on by Trump and company to minimize the damage to the United States. You know, you may think that you are well-intentioned, but what you are doing is you're failing to report crime of which you are aware and you have a legal obligation to do it. So that's why we have to change this culture. I totally agree with you. And I'm going to keep you posted on what happens with the New York State Bar. So let me move on for a second. The Trump Organization, this is, of course, via the district attorney here in New York, Alvin Bragg. They convicted the Trump Organization on 17 counts of tax-related fraud. So let's do something. Let's speculate. What do you think it ultimately means for the Trump Organization? Do you think that the Trump Organization is done? And then there's Alan Weisselberg, the CFO. Is Weisselberg the only one, in your opinion, that's going to go to do some jail time, but, you know, as a result of these charges? What's your gut telling you? Yeah, so first of all, I don't know anything about the business world, but it seems to me that when you have a company or a corporation that's been convicted of 17 felonies, they're basically done, right? No reputable lending institution is going to want to have anything to do with them, even the less than reputable lending institutions that I think sometimes did business with Trump or the Trump org, hoping they were going to get some bang for their buck, if only access and influence. I don't even think they're going to want to do business with the Trump organization. This coupled with the Tish James lawsuit, because this puts wind in the sails of that civil mm-hmm. suit that's seeking a quarter of a billion dollars and seeking to bar them from doing business in New York in the future. I, I think Trump org is done. Now, I have, frankly, a, the question that is more important is why in the world was Donald Trump not charged? Because 
you had enough evidence to charge his organization, his namesake, his chief financial officer, his right hand man. You know, Donald Trump was benefiting from these crimes, probably directing them as well. And most importantly, you had Pomerantz and Dunn, the prosecutors who were working the investigation, mm -hmm. come to Alvin Bragg and say, boss, we got enough to indict. We got enough to invict, convict. And Alvin Bragg said, nope, I'm killing the investigation. And then here's the, here's the capper. I'm going to quote from the prosecution's closing argument in the Trump org prosecution. The prosecutor said to the jury in closing, the evidence shows that Donald Trump explicit, explicitly okayed tax fraud. Well, if that's the case, if the evidence has proved that, then can you explain to me why Donald Trump wasn't charged? Alvin Bragg is the answer, but we don't know why Alvin Bragg declined to charge him. Will anybody else go to prison beyond Weisselberg? And we have a, we have a saying in D.C. It's called play in the 50s. It's when a cooperator comes in and kind of pretends to cooperate, but still is protecting others and holding some stuff back. It feels to me like Alan Weisselberg was playing the 50s. Maybe I'm wrong about that. You know, I don't know if he was really well, the, the, let, the let me say this to you, prosecution. Right. What's that? Yeah, well, let me say this to you. So I think the um, the uh, trial counsel was a guy named Joshua Steinglass, and he's the one I mm -hmm. think that made that comment. But mm -hmm. I will tell you, as a direct result of his closing, the jury did not believe Alan Weisselberg. They believed he was lying exactly on the point that you mentioned. I provided testimony to the DA you know, I, uh, over 13 times, and this was one of the topics, and I expressed to them that every single thing that goes on at the Trump Organization is done at the direction of and with the sign-off of Donald J. Trump. And they had a lot of those documents. So no one in the jury believed that what Alan Weisselberg was talking about, how he was falling on the sword, that Donald didn't know about it, that he doesn't know about grossing up and so on. Not a single juror believed. That's why you had such a quick deliberation and such a determination of conviction on 17 counts. My question to you then is Alan Weisselberg was given a sweetheart deal. Five months, which would turn out to 100 days in Rikers, if he told the truth and he cooperated. I'm not so sure he told the truth, so I'm very curious to see what the DA's office is going to do in regard to the misinformation or the attempted deflection away from Donald when sentencing comes up. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what the government, what the prosecutors represent to the court at the time Weisselberg is sentenced. Are they going to say he was a bang-up cooperator who did everything he could? Or are they going to say, we think he played games, therefore he should get a whole lot more than that five months we agreed to? I don't know. That's, you know, devil's in the details there. I mean, how could they possibly turn around and say that he was a great witness, he cooperated, he provided, you know, truthful testimony, when the jury that you picked comes back and says, we think Alan is full of shit, he's lying, we know that Donald knew because there are signatures or mark-offs and it's his apartments, it was his leases on the vehicles, he's the one who benefited, and they come back unanimous, 17 counts, guilty, 
in what? Under 10 hours of deliberation. I just think for Alvin Bragg, it's a very, very uh, hard thing for him to do at this point. And I think it was stupid of Alan Weisselberg. But I want to ask you this because I have a second part to the same question. How, and again, in your opinion, will this affect the Tish James suit against the Trump organization? And where does Alvin Bragg go from here? I mean, because he said on Ari Melber that the Trump probe is still ongoing. And of course, Bragg just uh, apparently brought in yet another prosecutor to look at some of the crimes of Donald Trump. He, he's reinvigorating his investigation into Trump. And he brought, I forget the gentleman's name from Matthew, the Matthew, uh, Matthew Colangelo. Yes, Colangelo who was at DOJ. And before that, he was with Tish James at the New York attorney general's office and had been investigating Trump. Um, so maybe, I mean, I'm not ever going to take Alvin Bragg at his word. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens and we'll see if Donald Trump is ever uh, indicted. Um, but so how does it impact Tish James civil suit? So in, in a couple of ways, one, any evidence that was developed during the course of the prosecution of the Trump org can certainly be handed over to Tish James and that can be incorporated into her civil suit. Um, but then the flip side of it is nothing that happens in one trial court case serves as any kind of precedent for what happens in another trial court case, right? And one was criminal, one was civil. But I think there's some atmospheric precedent. There's some wind in the sails because if you can convict Trump org of a you know decade and a half long uh, uh, pattern of financial fraud and corruption and tax evasion, well, how hard is it going to be to prove by a preponderance of the evidence, which is the standard in a civil case, as opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt, which was the evidentiary burden in the criminal prosecution. And a much, hi and a much, higher, bur and a much higher burden. Yeah. How hard is it going to be to make the civil case against Trump and his adult children? I think Tish James has got this, and I think she's got it easily. Yeah, me too. Now, Glenn, the one thing I do just want to correct you on, um, in Tish James's 220-page lawsuit, and a lot of people say this, the exact term that Tish James used was a benchmark of $250 million. That doesn't mean that she's asking for two hundred fifty. million. That's the base. I believe that when she finally puts pen to paper— and they figure out the extent of the criminality over this decade plus, this 13 years or so, I believe the number is going to be more in the line of about $750 million. That's my belief. Good. And again, because I know uh, so, so much of the information. Another thing is the, the uh, DA's office and the AG's office were actually working in tandem. So whatever documents, for example, whatever testimony that I provided to the DA— the DA shared with the AG and vice versa. So they have everything now, which is, again, exactly why, and I'm with you on this one, I believe Tish James has this and has it easily. Now, Trump says that because Twitter withheld Hunter Biden information, that we should terminate the Constitution. Shouldn't this terminate his run for the presidency? I mean, seriously, it just goes against the oath of office. It goes against every principle that we know. Not to mention it reinforces his criminal intent, his corrupt 
mens rea, his guilty state of mind all day long when he says we should terminate the Constitution and reinstall me as president or rerun the election. That just reinforces Donald Trump's criminal intent, you know, the defining moment where I believe prosecutors had evidence that they could use to prove beyond a reasonable doubt Donald Trump's corrupt intent was when we learned of that Oval Office meeting with DOJ officials where they were telling him there was no fraud undermining the election's results. And Donald Trump said, what? I don't care. Just say there was and leave the rest to me and my Republican allies in Congress. That is proof beyond a reasonable doubt of Donald Trump's criminal intent. The only thing we need, Michael, is to get an indictment, get a prosecutor to plant his or her feet in the well of a court in front of 12 citizens sitting in a jury box as the conscience of the community. Donald Trump will be indicted even quicker. I mean, will be convicted even quicker than the Trump organization was convicted, which was like, what, two days, bang, right? We just need to get to that point to protect our dang democracy. Glenn, I'm not sure if it was even two days. I think it was like 10 hours of deliberation. Like nine hours yeah, over something the course like of that. two days. Right, because then I know yeah. that the last um, statements made by counsel um, ended up on a Friday, and so they reconvened on Monday, and boom, they announced uh, the... You know, decision 10 hours later. And so I don't know. It's it's crazy. But let me ask you this then. Why, in your opinion, why don't Trump supporters ever just jump off the goddamn Trump train already? I mean, he's broke. He has a plethora of legal troubles. He says what he wants, right, including terminate the Constitution. He's having dinner with white supremacists and racists and saying this, the dumbest shit that anyone can imagine. I mean, just all of it. So why do they stay? Because we have folks in this country, as we both know, who are racist, who are white supremacists, who are misogynists, who are xenophobic. And because Donald Trump speaks their language and because Donald Trump gives permission to their hate and makes it fashionable, it's reinforcing to them when Donald Trump has dinner with Nazis. They like it. They embrace it. They're part of that team. You know, I've, I've often jokingly said, you know, I, I grew up on the New York Giants. My pop was a high school football coach. He was a Giants fan. So I was a Giants fan. And then the Army moved me to the Washington, D.C. area in 1990. And for no good reason, I started to root for the Washington football team. And They've largely been losers, but I stick with them. People stick with a team even when it's a losing team. Donald Trump is a losing team. He's, you know, he's 0 for I don't know how many now, right? But people are going to stick with him because he hates the way they hate and they love that. It's just I just don't get it, you know. There are so many others in the GOP, and we'll call them Donald Trump 2.0s. Let's look at Ron DeSantis. I don't think Ron DeSantis is any better, to be honest with you, than, than Donald. He's smarter than Donald. He's slicker. I think he could be as cruel as Donald. He has his own certain ideas. I don't, and I will not, you know, cast him as a racist uh, or a white supremacist. I don't know him or any, I've never seen anything to suggest that, but... 
He's certainly a, um, an anti-vaxxer. We certainly know that. Uh, we know that there are things about him that mirror Donald. So I call him a Donald Trump 2.0. Why not just get behind somebody like DeSantis? Why stick it out with a guy who has now demonstrated that he has lied to you at least 50,000 times since coming down the escalator? And the part that gets me the most, and since we're on Florida and Ron DeSantis, I don't understand why the Cuban-American, especially the wealthy Cuban-American crowd down there in South Miami, why they support Donald. Do they not understand that he wants to be everything that they ran away from, everything that they hated about Cuba, Donald wants to create? Yeah, some, I think there, there is this hatred of the other. And, you know, the other is not just minorities or folks who practice a different religion or who are undocumented. Um, the other is also the, the Democrats. <laughs> and there are some people who are so desperate to own the libs, as they put it, to combat, you know, wokeness, as they put it, all of which is just idiocy, quite frankly, Um but because Donald Trump will forever be battling the other on the political front, they're going to stick with a guy like that. And I'm going to go back to the hate. I mean, don't underestimate the, the galvanizing power of hate. It's, more, it's a more powerful force than love, in my opinion. Hate really does galvanize. It pulls people together. When you, you and I hate the other the same, we got that going for us, even if we have nothing else going for us, right? Because Donald Trump hasn't appreciably improved the lives of anybody. Um, so people can be dirt poor, but man, we're holding on to that hate that Donald gives us. I don't think DeSantis, he may have that in him. He did kidnap asylum seekers, kidnapping by inveiglement, mm -hmm. which an express... Um, uh, a subsection of kidnapping under the federal law. Kidnapping by inveiglement means fooling or tricking or deceiving somebody uh, to go from point A to point B by lying to them. That's what DeSantis and Abbott did. But I don't think I don't think DeSantis has galvanized the hate vote yet. But give him time. Yeah, well, Lord knows we've seen that hate um, during World War II. Uh, I mean, certainly that's what the Nazi Reich was, you know, all predicated on, right? Most of these people didn't like each other. You know, they didn't know each other. They're from different cultures, different backgrounds. But, yep, the hatred certainly um, united them to try to take over the entire world. Well, let me just jump ahead for a second and ask you about the January 6th committee, because I understand that they're going to make some criminal referrals, who do you think will be the subject of those referrals? And what do you think that the charges will be? On top of that, how serious are these referrals likely to be taken by the DOJ? Because we just don't see a lot of action. I mean, let's compare it then to the Mueller team and to the fact that they chose not to send it out for criminal referrals. What do you think is going to happen here? Yeah, so criminal referrals by Congress have met with mixed success, right? Let's look at the last four criminal referrals they made. They referred Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro for contempt of Congress and DOJ prosecuted them. They referred Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino for contempt of Congress for the precise same crime and a crime they inarguably committed. There's no argument that they didn't fail to comply with congressional subpoenas. And DOJ has not indicted 
uh, Mark Meadows or Dan Scavino. So why do you think that's referrals, so? Why do you think that's so? Well, if you ask me, because I'm kind of a law and order guy, I would say it's because they're intending to roll those two men into the larger 371 conspiracy to commit offenses against or defraud the United States. That's how I read that. But I could be wrong. It could be because they were, you know, higher up in the political hierarchy and we didn't want to, you know, intrude and set the precedent that we're going to go after a chief of staff and blah, blah, effing blah, political calculations, not factual or legal calculations. And let me go back because this one sticks in my craw to this day, even though it was 2019. Remember, a bipartisan Senate Intel Committee referred for criminal investigation and possible prosecution, Don Jr., Kushner, uh, Bannon, uh, Sam Clovis, and Eric Prince. Now, that was Bill Barr's Department of Justice, where criminal referrals of Donald Trump's criminal associates and family members went to die. You know, Bill Barr wasn't going to authorize mm -hmm. prosecution of those people. He was going to protect Donald Trump's interests. But so the point is criminal referrals are recommendations. They're suggestions. They don't have any binding effect on the Department of Justice. In fact, sometimes the Department of Justice takes a little bit of exception because we exercise independent prosecutorial discretion. Don't go telling us who you think we should prosecute because that feels political. But here's the thing. When a co-equal branch of government has done the kind of exhaustive deep dive investigation into an attack on our democracy that the J6 committee did. And when they package up those thousand plus transcripts and million plus exhibits and issue a report that sets out why the evidence shows Donald Trump and company committed federal offenses. And they give that to we the people and they give it to the Department of Justice. Yeah, the Department of Justice will take it very seriously. And let me and let me add this. The head of the J6 investigative team is a guy named Tim Heafy. He hired, he was hired to head up the investigative team. You saw him sitting right in the middle of the panel at the last J6 public hearing right next to Representative Benny Thompson. And he he and I started together. He and I handled murder cases and RICO cases together. He is one of the best RICO prosecutors uh, the Department of Justice has ever seen. He hired a whole batch of former federal prosecutors, which is why this J6 investigation has been conducted expertly, in part, in my opinion. What we prosecutors do at the end of an investigation is we draft what we call a CIM, a case impression memo or a prosecution report. And we put everything in there that proves that crimes were committed before we make a decision whether to seek an indictment or not. I, I have a feeling when we read this report that's going to be issued by the J6, it's going to be a CIM. It's going to be just like a prosecution report. It's going to be so damn compelling in documenting and detailing the evidence of crime by Trump and company that it will put enormous pressure on the machinery of government to indict the crimes that have been proved. Yeah, well— doesn't seem like anything seems to light a fire under Merrick Garland's ass because there are so many things that could have and should have been done already. But I agree with you. I believe that it will be that type of a memo, and I believe that it will come out by year's end. Now, one of the things that we know, because 
They interviewed over a thousand people. There's more than a million documents, as you stated. It's going to be a really long and a really interesting read. But how effective do you think that the select committee, you know, presented its case to the American people overall? And how do you think that history will remember them? And when I say them, I don't just mean the team, the January 6th committee, because personally, I think they were fabulous. Every single one of them, from Benny Thompson to Jamie Raskin to Alicia, I think, you know, they were all absolutely fantastic. But I'm talking about the people on the opposite side. Right. The Eric Trumps, the Lara Trumps, the, you know, uh, the Oath Keepers, the Donald Trumps of the world, all of these bad actors that were involved, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Josh Hawley at the time. How do you think that history will ultimately remember them? You know, I hope history remembers them accurately, and that's going to be up to the historians. But, you know, we have insurrectionists in Congress. We just do. Some of them have been reelected, right? And here's something I think we should stay tuned for. Um, when they, when the swearing in of the new Congress happens in January, there will be an opportunity for members of Congress to object to the seating of other members of Congress if they believe they participated in the insurrection. Why? Because the 14th Amendment expressly disqualifies somebody from sitting in Congress if after taking an oath of allegiance to the United States, you engage in insurrection or give aid and comfort to those who do, which members of Congress did, some of them. So I think there is a battle brewing um, that will play out around the time the new Congress is sworn in. I hope, I hope history, history will look um, kindly on the J6 committee. I mean, I, I think they did a remarkable job with what limited time they had to actually present the information to the American people, even though it was over the course of several public hearings. I mean, more than a thousand witnesses. You know, this could be a 10 year long running series that we could uh, we could binge watch for the next 10 years, seven days a week and still not get everything. And I think the beauty of this report, which I think will be a soup to nuts um, um, recitation of what they learned, you know, that's not going to be digested by the American people, but it will be digested by the Department of Justice. So I think the J6 committee did about as well as it as it could do. And I think the members of Congress who shamed themselves by participating in or assisting the insurrectionists, I hope they're held accountable and I hope history accurately reflects their their lack of patriotism. I totally agree with you. Can I just go back to that whole bar scenario again? Because and not about me this time. It's about Rudy Colludi, drunken Giuliani. I mean, this asshole is being grilled by the bar over his ethics with regard to the 2020 election. But there's been some new reporting out there that says that it was actually Jared Kushner who really got the ball rolling to overturn the 2020 election. So in essence, and it's not that I, I don't refute it because it's perfect for Jared. He basically set Giuliani up to take the fall. Now, Jared spoke with the committee, and he probably lied under oath. What's your take on Jared's ethics and the billions of dollars that he's received from the Saudis to that real estate fund or whatever his investment company is, that he has no knowledge that 
the Saudi investment authority didn't even want to give to him because they know he's not competent. I mean, where's the criminal investigation into this guy? Though I also read today that there is an investigation that has now just been opened. I think it's by the Senate Judiciary and the House Oversight Committee into Jared Kushner, Kushner Company, um, and a whole slew of other things. Long question, but do your best. Yeah. So I saw the reporting about a congressional investigation being opened into Kushner and the $2 billion Saudi deal. I don't I haven't heard anything about a criminal investigation into Jared Kushner. But what I will say is in the normal course of business, we're not supposed to hear anything about a criminal investigation unless and until there are charges. You know, the other thing as a former homicide prosecutor myself that has always uh, deeply, deeply disturbed me was Jared Kushner was part of misusing the power of the government to create avoidable COVID deaths. And where is the justice for those people who lost loved ones as a result of Jared Kushner saying, oh, it's running rampant through the blue states more than the red states? How about we just let that run for a while? I mean, if, if he doesn't have criminal culpability for avoidable COVID deaths, together with Mike Pence as head of the Coronavirus Task Force, and Donald Trump for lying to us all about the danger, then I don't know that there's any justice out there. But let me go back to to Rudy Giuliani for a minute, because today's reporting, which I loved, comes from the the hearing that's being conducted by the D.C. Bar Council into whether Rudy should be disbarred. Let me just read one sentence, because the person who is sort of prosecuting it, so to speak, the D.C. Bar Council lawyer who is heading up the proceedings against Giuliani, a guy named... Hamilton Philip Fox III. This guy was like special counsel, assistant special counsel during Whitewater. He's been around the block. He said um, that he told the panel that the former New York City mayor, once the top U.S. prosecutor in Manhattan, Rudy Giuliani, quote, weaponized his law license to bring a frivolous action in an attempt to undermine the Constitution, close quote. They're going hard at Rudy, albeit only in a disbarment proceeding. But let's hope that there are charges somewhere in the offing for the crimes Rudy committed. You know, so going back to the Kushner issue and so on, I was accurate in one and not in the other. So it is the House Oversight and Reform Committee. And it was signed. The letter was signed by Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney. But the other one was the Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden of Oregon that ended up penning this um, this document. And it's it's interesting because it goes into the entire scenario of Jared Kushner, his family business, the raising of financial uh, interests and concerns using the Middle East um, as basically a bank, um, going going all the way back to when Trump became president-elect with um, Qatar and so on. It's a very interesting letter. Uh, and, of course, it involves um, Brookfield Asset Management and Charlie Kushner, the father, uh, all over 666 Fifth Avenue, which was a building that maybe the worst investment in the history of the United States that Jared did when he was like 20-something years old uh, after his father was away that would, would, would have caused the, uh, the Kushner company to potentially file a Chapter 11. That's how deep into debt. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, 
$1.1 billion comes in and saves them. And I think they were able to pull out like $200 million. It's really an incredible thing. It's all about access and influence, right? And, and using and misusing your proximity to power. Um, and let's hope that the two committees that are investigating this do a deep dive. And you know what? Let's see some criminal referrals come out of that if the evidence supports them. Totally agree with you. So, you know, Glenn, look, the hour goes by quick. I have one last question for you. Let's talk about the case that's right now before the Supreme Court. Wednesday, they began debating whether state legislators have the power to set federal voting rules without oversight from state courts. Now, what would be the reason for such a change? And it's obvious, right? The, the, they want to be able to steal an election and to control who wins and who loses. But more importantly, how could it affect future elections? And how do you think that the Supreme Court will ultimately rule on this case? So this is what they call the independent state legislature doctrine. And boiling it down to its essence, the assertion is that state legislatures have absolutely unfettered, non-reviewable by a court discretion in how to run their elections, which would mean basically if the Supreme Court sanctions the independent state legislature doctrine, it it means that the fake elector scheme has become the law of the land and state legislatures can disregard the popular vote for any reason, can name electors for the losing candidate for president and send those electors forward to Congress. And that's not reviewable by state courts because they're independent state legislatures. It's a non-reviewable issue. I don't call it the ISL doctrine. I call it the EOD doctrine, the end of democracy doctrine, because Mm -hmm. that will be the result. It will be codifying into law the big lie or the the process by which the big lie moves forward. I mean, it could, yeah, I agree with you. It's the end of democracy. And I certainly hope, despite the fact that there are some real wackadoodles on the Supreme Court now and the actions that they're taking, whether it's the action on Roe, whether it's the action on Bivens, whether, I mean, I don't, I don't understand what they're doing, but I certainly don't think that they want to see the end of democracy, that they want to put into um, people's minds that every single election really doesn't mean anything. It's all going to be determined by who's sitting in these positions, uh, these legislative positions. And I don't even know what to do in the event that it goes the opposite direction. I don't even know what we can do. You know, we can try to do what I think Biden has been trying to do when it comes to a rogue Supreme Court. They just passed the Marriage Equality Act. I don't know the precise title, but that is codifying something that we know the Supreme Court was getting ready to take away. They successfully took away women's constitutionally protected privacy rights over their own reproductive health decisions. They took that away, but Congress can still codify the rights that previously were in Roe v. Wade if they can get enough votes. 
we know based on the dissent or the, the separate opinion written by Thomas that they were going to try to take other privacy rights away, like marriage mm -hmm. equality. But guess what? Biden administration beat the Supreme Court to the punch. So that is some of what we can try to do. And we could also add a few more Supreme Court judges. That right? would be good. Would that be something? So, Glenn, let me thank you. Your insight is always special, top-notch. Justice matters, right? Uh, you are certainly um, incredible. And I want to thank you. And obviously, with all the craziness that's going on, need you to come back. Thanks. So I want to thank you for your time today. And I desperately hope to see you soon. Thanks, Michael. Good being with you. And now for today's mea culpa. Trump is having a rough go of it. According to sources, he has rarely left his bedroom in Mar-a-Lardo since announcing that he's running for president again, and is having what might amount to the worst three weeks of any political campaign in history. He had an awful Thanksgiving with truly terrible guests. His company was found guilty of 17 counts of tax fraud. He was caught with two more classified documents. His candidate lost in Georgia. Three weeks into it, and there have been no rallies, no exclusive TV interviews. And the only message has been, let's terminate the Constitution. Even the charming RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel, who took the Romney out of her name as a show of loyalty to Trump, has turned her back on the former president in part because she begged him not to announce his candidacy until after the new year. And obviously, he did it anyway. And as a result, he's lost so much voter support. Apparently, the whole MAGA thing isn't aging well. I'm sorry if this feels like gloating. It's more shock and dismay. I'm not sure why he doesn't start cutting deals to get himself the fuck out of trouble. I mean, wait, yes, I do know why. It's his fucking ego and his hubris. Look, let's all be clear. This isn't some multi-dimensional chess game that he's playing. This is his life's work catching up to him. Crime pays until it doesn't. When you've been to the top of the mountain, and the American presidency is definitely the top of the top, but when you've been on top like that, it's a long, long way fucking down. So imagine all the people he met going up who are now disappearing on the way down. I suggest he makes friends with the debt collectors who are almost certainly circling Mar-a-Lardo like sharks. Trump is a one-man cautionary tale, and I say that from experience. His acolytes, like Madison Cawthorn and Matt Gates, are both fucking jokes whose various legal issues just don't even seem to go away. Gates, we hear, is not off the hook for paying an underage girl to have sex with him. The lawyers who represent his former wingman, Joel Greenberg, say that there is still more dirt to come out against Gates. Greenberg only got 11 years because he ended up giving up everything he had on everybody. So good luck with you, Matt. You're gonna need it. And then the unbelievably stupid fucking asshole Madison Cawthorn is being fined by the Ethics Committee for promoting a cryptocurrency he had a giant stake in. His investment in the Let's Go Brandon coin was not disclosed as required according to the Ethics Report. I mean, seriously, Let's Go Brandon is the name of the coin that Madison Cawthorn spent all his money on? The report also said it did not find that Cawthorn violated the rules knowingly. Well, of course not, because he's too fucking stupid. Cawthorn, by the way,
packed up his congressional office and left DC weeks ago. Why? Not because his term was over, but because he lost his primary and people are mean in Washington. So go ahead, Madison, take your fucking ball in your shitty cryptocurrency and run home. But I digress. We were talking about Trump. And you know I love talking about Trump. There was a bright spot for him on Friday when a federal judge in a closed-door hearing refused to hold Trump in contempt for failing to comply with a subpoena ordering him to turn over classified records. Sources told CNN that the judge pressed the Trump team and the Justice Department to work together to find a mutually agreeable resolution. The DOJ rightfully sought to hold Trump and his team in contempt for not complying with the subpoena following the Mar-a-Lardo search in August. But Friday's win doesn't mean that Jack Smith isn't knocking at his door. I mean, far from it, being held in contempt over subpoenas for documents you refuse to hand over is now just another day in the life of Donald J. Trump. And who is Trump running for president against? because no one else seems to have entered the race yet. So for now, it appears that Trump is running against himself and against his former glory and success. He is self-destructing before our eyes and it's disturbing in that car crash kind of way where you just can't stop looking. Sadly, there is so much more bad news coming for Trump. It's too bad he can't just take the wife and the kids and enjoy a nice vacation, get the fuck out of all of our lives, but right now, it's just probably too late. The wheels of justice were slow to start, but they are definitely rolling now, so there's no more time for fun and games. Hey Donald, the end is near, and more importantly, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my-